0: So um, one of the, uh, you know, uh, curiosity about the human brain and about the humanity about, uh, you know, it's, you know, just like, you know, how do you kind of like, um, as a global brain, like how do you reaching all these dimensions and then co-creating with other people, as a society or as individuals. It's both, And And then I'm also curious, like, you know, in more detail, like I personally very passionate about future medicine. Uh, You know, like, like, do you have anything you feel you can contribute to that prediction of what do you see is the future medicine looks like?
1: Well, the future of medicine is that through biosensors and AI, we eventually are going to be able to measure everything happening in the human body create detailed simulations of it and then send various you know bio nanotech into the human body to modify things including fixing what goes wrong and also making modifications aimed at increasing functionality i mean eventually which hopefully will be decades rather than centuries we'll understand the human body is just a you know molecular bio-machine and we'll be able to repair and improve it as as we wish then it will seem ridiculous that you know our best way to deal with the brain tumor was like to cut the head open right or or and ridiculous that you could you could just breathe some like meningitis virus through the air and then just die because we, we didn't yet have like the the nano nano tool to send into the brain and, and squash that virus, right? So I think we we are palpably like we're within reaching distance of solving molecular biology and human physiology and we, we see now what kinds of molecular biology tools you would need to to just make something you can inject in the body that will be a sort of molecular computer and go in and fix everything. But of course at that very high level, it's clear. But I mean, at, at a, the level of nitty-gritty biology research, there's a hell of a lot of work to do. Like we now have CRISPR, which is amazing, yeah. but we can only edit like a, a couple genes at a time. You can't you can't edit a hundred genes at a time because yep. just the chemical side effects of, of using CRISPR would be would be too much, right? So there, there's uh, there's many many cycles of radical innovation needed on the nitty-gritty technology to achieve the higher level vision which however at least it's clear it's it's scientifically plausible
0: yeah how about you what do you think would be the future of medicine
2: yeah. um, I mean, just as Fickenstein said the world of the, uh, of the unhappy is different from the happy likewise I think the world of the super happy uh, it would be different from anything you can imagine that post-human Uh, consciousness will be, uh, yeah, just uh, unimaginable to humans and insofar as post-humans contemplate our existence at all, which they probably wouldn't most of the time at any rate, they would see us as uh, profoundly uh, depressed, malaise-ridden, psychotic, uh, dysfunctional. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, what lies ahead too is probably uh, a revolution in our understanding of consciousness, the mind and brain, but no uh, intellectual progress has been made in solving the hard problem of consciousness for scientific materialism since Democritus. Um, However, I, though I'm not not a a materialist, I am a physicalist, and I think that the world is exhaustively (coughs) described by the equations of physics, and uh, I would anticipate cautiously at any rate a revolution in our understanding of uh, the mind. Uh, uh, ben and I disagree as to
1: whether... Yeah, I'm not a physicalist. Either. <laughs> I'm a physicalist. Well, yes, no. I, I but
2: I I, uh, I buy into the uh, the quantum theoretic uh, uh, version of the intrinsic nature argument. The intrinsic nature argument is the idea that our minds, phenomenal minds, and the world simulations we run disclose the intrinsic nature of the physical. Um, But if this is the case, not merely are the fundamental quanta or psychons of consciousness ridiculously uh, small, they are ridiculously short-lived. And I think if you were to probe the mind, uh, brain, not at the scale of milliseconds, but at the scale of femtoseconds, uh, interferometry will disclose a perfect structural match between what you are experiencing right now. Uh, and the CNS ultimately physics, whereas uh, as philosophers from William James to David Chalmers have pointed out that this structural match does not appear to exist, and this is the reason why uh, Chalmers is is a dualist, and in one sense I agree with him that if there is not a perfect structural match between our minds and the underlying physics, then dualism is true.
1: I mean he's a sort of proto pan psychist in a way, right? I mean he, Thomas, doesn't, he, he doesn't think of himself as a duelist, does he?
2: Ah oh, well this is this is it, you see. He is uh, i yeah, I mean Thomas is very very good in one respect. He's he's not dogmatic. He explores different yeah, positions. Yeah, yeah. But uh there seems to have been quite a big shift within in philosophy and even some hard-nosed scientists towards something like either panpsychism or even non-materialist physicalism. But if this is the case, and this is something that Chalmers uh, very much stresses, that one needs to explain why we are not micro-experiential zombies. And when one is looking at what is the evolutionary adaptive function of of consciousness, um, it's... Even a partial breakdown of phenomenal binding has an immense fitness cost. You'll find people who sure. uh, simultaneous nausea, who can only uh, see one thing at once, yeah. or, or sure. uh, motion blindness, or so But this or is about why the
1: specific type of consciousness to. humans but this have adapted, this right? is adapted.
2: Yeah, but this, this nonetheless, if. If one is to come up with a a, a physicalist account of consciousness, one must explain why consciousness exists at all, how it is phenomenally bound, how it is that consciousness apparently has the causal capacity to allow, causal functional capacity to allow us to talk about. Uh, uh, it and also the uh, the palette problem—the fact that we have fabulous richness of conscious experience—and apparently, at any rate, the fundamental constituents of the world very simple.
0: Yeah, it's, so it's funny, like for the audience, I, it sounds to me like a common way to interpret this is, you know, this whole thing about the mind-body medicine, right? Like we have, you know, Ben here talking about all this self-generating, you know, modify your genes and to cure uh-huh. disease. And then we have, you know, David was more into consciousness, the deeper inside of human minds. You
2: know, <laughs> sure to deep inside too. <laughs> I mean,
1: <laughs> not. not I, th- I think we've actually just been talking about different things. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to directly yeah. answer your question. But you're not a physicalist. This is a, I hadn't realized that <laughs> you're not. No, not really. I, I'm in. Mean, I do agree with Strawson that physicalism entails mm-hmm. panpsychism anyway. But I, I think our 4D spacetime continuum exists within some larger space that has other things in it which is probably what you need to explain things like like rein, reincarnation and mediumistic seances and, and so on, which I'm, I'm confident have some reality to them, although I don't believe the traditional religious stories about them. So I, I think our, our 4D space-time continuum, the 4D multiverse, is not all there is. And whether you want to describe the broader space that's embedded in this physical or not, to me is an uninteresting Question of 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 semantics, but th- but this this gets into a lot of quite deep questions. Actually, I had a question for you based on some of your previous <laughs> statements. So, have you personally experienced like extraordinary, overwhelming, blissful well-being? Is, is, is that within you, Is that within your yes. transcendent positive?
2: well-being? Sadly, only only uh, 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 I had access, at one stage, to pure MDMA
1: before... Only on ecstasy, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yes,
2: you see, and it gave me an insight into what mental health uh, could be like. And there's, of course, this big temptation, if, if, you know, a cardinal peak experience of one's own life, to generalize this to the rest of the universe. And though I certainly think in some contexts a far greater empathy, compassion, perspective-taking is needed... There are uh, other contexts too in which uh, a capacity to be an autistic systematizer is extremely valuable. Um, and oh, it's quite flattering. In as other well,
1: words, if, if we were all in ecstasy all the time, we'd probably <laughs> never create the singularity. Well, oh, we too oh, hard oh, to focus on the bugs <laughs> in your code. Oh, right?
2: oh, yeah. Or just simply well, reprogramming the
1: biosphere.
2: You know, I'm not more compassionate than the average cat lover. Person but but it,
0: it's hard to, hard to predict what you said. Maybe perhaps those experiences <laughs> actually created your desire to be a superpower human. You know, that in a sense that you can physically, emotionally experience this whole very blissful, transcendent humanity that you're curious about and then, you know, you're able
1: to... I I do think he's basically (laughs) correct though. So, I think that the AIs we're going to create are going to be not only much more intelligent than us, much more compassionate than us, and they'll be much happier than us. Yeah. And I think that human beings once we solve molecular biology and understand how the brain works future humans will be much more intelligent compassionate and happy than current humans although not as intelligent compassionate or joyous as the super ais that that that, that will be well we, we
0: don't know yet <laughs> we, don't know any, we don't know anything
1: at all but it is pretty clear To maintain humanity requires certain limitations in your information processing capacity. So like, humans have a short-term memory capacity of 7 plus or minus 2 items, right? And If you could hold 10 billion things in your short-term memory at once, you might be smarter, and you might be happier, and you might understand more, so you can have compassion toward more of the universe, but you're not going to be Human anymore in any meaningful sense, and if you could experience a billion bodies—perhaps
0: well, the definition of human—if you could experience a billion bodies two. at
1: one time, <laughs> right? And and you have that experience for a long time, yeah. and you're constantly shifting which billion bodies it is. That's really cool, and you may be conscious. You may be much more vividly conscious than a human. I think it's a stretch to say. You're still gonna be human. I, I think I think it's a different well, thing. Yeah,
0: that's what I'm saying, the definition sure, we can human redefine could, that as, could, I could change. I don't care know? what
1: words people use. <laughs> we'll not be using words anymore anyway. We'll be using direct thought transmission, right?
0: Yeah.
1: I think I'm going to want to head over to the yeah. The bar sure. Before so else one and, uh, last yeah. two
0: advice for the audience. So first one is for people who's you know intrigued by your discussion and who wanted to you know sort of uh, make a differences in this whole movement. Uh, Take action. It's obvious. What would you <laughs> <laughs> no, advise for them?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what would be your advice for them?
1: People who want to, well, I think. You know, I'm asked often by people who are interested and, and passionate about transhumanism, AGI, life extension, medicine-related yeah. topics. I mean, I'm often asked, what can I do to contribute? And the bottom line is there's no one really really good answer to that. I mean, of course, if someone's an AI programmer, I have specific AI projects I would, I would love help with. If someone's a biologist, it would be great to have more about just working on human longevity, which is not getting much focus, but the the bottom line is how to create a more positive, amazing future, that's something the totality of the human race has to think about, and a few of us gurus cannot tell everyone exactly how, how they should contribute, so I mean getting educated and learning more is certainly the first step, and I think if you learn more about you know all the different sciences and philosophies involved in transhumanism and associated technologies, as you go through that learning path, then you will understand how you should best contribute better than we would be able to tell you.
0: Yeah. So, what's your advice to the audience who's passionate about you know creating positive social impacts in this? Don't worry. Space? Be happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that song.
2: Yeah. Well. Uh, Jains, uh, uh, Indian Jains, or distinctively Indian Jains, uh, aim to do no harm by word or deed. Mm. They're famous for sweeping the ground in front of them rather than inadvertently tread mm. on an insect. And though in life it's impossible uh, to avoid causing harm or upset or offence or hurting, uh, wherever possible, uh, I think one should, yes, aspire do no harm, uh, and uh, quite critically uh, in our society at present, uh, yes, that means uh, uh, giving up uh, uh, animal abuse, uh, Mm. which means uh, quitting meat and ideally all animal products. uh.
0: Okay, cool, and how about for the younger generation, you know, you have 16-month-old son, 14-month-old granddaughter, yeah. you know, uh, three other kids, you know. And a bunch so, of robots. Yeah, a yeah. bunch of robots. You know, what's your advice for the advice younger to the generation? the younger generation
1: is to figure it out for yourself. Uh, I, I I had no interest in what the older generation was telling me when I was a kid, so yeah. I don't expect the younger generation to listen Any to vocal me. Any book or
0: recommendation? Ah,
1: uh, you know, this is, a, this is a very, it's a very large field and transhumanism, there, there, there are so many, so many different directions that, that that you could pursue. I mean, I think I don't have any books that are way out out there to recommend. I mean, there's The Singularity is Near, Age of Spiritual Machines from Kurzweil, The Spike by my friend Damien Broderick from the late 90s was along the same lines. The Prometheus Project, which I read in the early 1970s, had many of these same ideas but with a different twist. I had my own books, The AGI Revolution and, and uh, A Cosmos Manifesto. But again, that's a sampling of hundreds of, of, yeah. of, of amazing things that, that are out there. And of course, everything that David has written is amazing and well worth reading.
0: Yeah, you know? so David what will be your tips and tools and advice, uh, book of recommendation for the younger generation.
1: Good heavens. Um, I think Ben
2: actually put it better than uh, I can now that, uh, yes, uh, it would depend on what your focus is, whether you think that you would want to be uh, a scientific researcher or whether uh, a campaigner, an ideologist, a philosopher, the very, very different set of uh, skills involved. Uh, I think uh, transhumanists tend to be very weak on uh, marketing and PR uh, it needs to be yeah. a level of professionalism that is orders of magnitude more sophisticated than we typically see at uh, uh, the moment. At the moment. Um, I don't know if you want a career in, in bioscience, for example. I, I think we are tantalizingly close to actually finding the molecular signature of bliss. It's been narrowed down in Rats to a cubic millimetre, in humans, presumably scales uh, up to a cubic centimetre. Yeah. I'm oversimplifying given the nature of the binding problem, but I think that will lead to a profound revolution, too. Yeah. Um,
1: Agreed. But
2: uh, yeah, whether uh, if you have a, a, a good physical presence, getting a, a YouTube uh, channel, um, I'm. Uh, a wordsmith, uh, but uh, yes, one is more c- effective as a as a visual communicator. Obviously, if one has uh, computer skills too, I'm, I'm personally skeptical that you'll be able to uh, build uh, AGI. But uh, I you, you can program to...
1: IBM's quantum computer <laughs> through the internet now. <laughs> <laughs> They're advancing fast. Uh-huh.
0: Um, and so, lastly, give our audience three powerful words for takeaway.
2: See you later. <laughs> super intelligence, super longevity, and super happiness.
0: Love it.
1: Hallelujah.
0: Yeah. What's yours?
1: Okay. Cut. It see you later. I'm
0: already, I'm already, I'm already Bye. Thank you so much. stage four show fan i hope you love this interview COVID 19 make me realize that wisdom from these top industry leaders is invaluable for dealing with uncertainty and building resilience when you share our show you're helping change lives too i love you and i'll see you in the next show stage four is an educational arm of dance for healing check out our COVID 19 initiative at www.stage IV and WW number four healing.com So we just got into this fantastic discussion about humanity and the super-intelligence by two of the pioneers in this whole transhumanist movement. Uh, And what I'm more curious, why do you do what you do? And and how did you get started? David, where did you develop this curiosity about happiness and humanity? Uh, Well, I think uh,
2: all... uh... Animals uh, have a pleasure-pain axis, so in that sense it's quite natural. And uh, like uh, most transhumanists, even if I appear to be talking about the next few billion years, in many ways it's a form of disguised autobiography. And of course it's, it's possible that one's own life will uh, mirror the, uh, the past and future of the universe, but in practice it's more likely that it what one is writing and talking uh, is idiosyncratic. Now, okay, the fact that I'm aware, <laughs> I try to uh, allow for this possibility and the fact that I personally suffered and witnessed uh, 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 suffering, it's certainly not peculiar to me, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, there is a, a big element of the uh, the personal here and that uh, just as, uh, uh, yes, I would see part of my own life as uh, overcoming suffering and those uh, other sentient beings that uh, transhumanists who are fundamentally uh, happy and love life rather than let's say the, problem, the biggest problem being the problem of pain or suffering. It may be defeating aging or building posthuman superintelligence. Two topics that uh, certainly uh, interest me, but are not my consuming passion.
0: Yeah, so um, it's funny when you mention suffering, it just keeps reminding me this whole Buddhism, you know, and the foundation of Buddhism, which is for me, it's kind of oh, like a living philosophy. Is yeah. <laughs> yeah, and what what was the personal suffering that you, you know, described that where the audience can have, you know, understanding? Um, no,
2: unfortunately I unfortunately, I, I have no. Um, uh, a colourful anecdote for you, in my case, I'd just say my default setting for mood was quite low. Not the uh, severe forms uh, of depression where people don't eat or anything like that, but uh, always had very limited hedonic capacity. Uh, uh, and in my early youth I used to suffer from melancholia and uh, with difficulty I was able to claw my way out of the abyss. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, not any uh, interesting little anecdotes for you, uh, uh, so sorry there.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, obviously a lot of times these words, you know, have very sort of personal meaning to each person, right? Like, you know, what, what is suffering, right? It is really kind of your own self-interpretation that things are hard for you, both emotionally and physically, right? And, you know, like for me, you know, probably cancer was the most difficult one that I have to deal with, uh, you know, but there are other things that was more difficult for me to deal with is actually the mental breakdown that I was a failure after cancer, like trying to start this company to help patients. Did you see, there's different levels of suffering where physically it was cancer, emotionally it was actually my self-judgment of being sure. a failure, right? And oh. I mean, what what was, how did you get started? You know, like, how did you get your interest in AI? Uh, in AI, in mathematics, you know, and I know you're also a musician. I, I saw you oh. pi- play piano.
1: I mean, I'm interested in, in everything. It's a matter of prioritization, right? When I was a very young child, I watched the original Star Trek on TV with my dad. I think my, f- my first vivid memory is watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon on television. Yeah. So I, I very early got into reading reading science fiction, and there's a lot of cool things there. There's there's time travel, there's, yeah. there's AGI, there's space-time reengineering, engineering nanotech, immortality. I, I, I liked all these things. I was drawn to AI in particular because it seemed like you could maybe do it just by sitting down and typing at the computer without, without needing to re-engineer star system or cut open people's, people's <laughs> heads or something, right? So then, I mean, the nature of thinking was also always interesting to me, and my, my mom was studying Chinese history and philosophy when I was a kid, so I read the work of various Buddhist logicians and so on. Then I got into Uspensky and, and Gurdjieff and all these Russian... Mystical theories of, of of the mind in sort of fifth, sixth grade, and middle school, so it was sort of coupled with trying to understand how the mind how my own mind works with
0: yeah.
1: just the desire to do amazing amazing engineering achievements i 'd say my emotional makeup has been a bit different than than David describes I, I, I guess i 've always been a fairly happy person and uh, yeah. driven sort of by Feeling inspired to to do amaz- amazing and exciting things, but then of, of course, I remember when my great grandmother died when I was maybe one and a half years old. I was oh a tiny God. little baby, and I didn't understand what was going on. Well, and I kept asking my dad about it, and finally he he's a very matter of fact guy. He's trying to explain to me what's death, so he's like. we saw this dead cat out in the street. It's like that. I got it, right? And then I realized at some point my mom and dad were going to die. And we're all going to be dead. And this...
0: Was that scary for you as a young child? Um,
1: No, it just seemed unfortunate. It wasn't scary, but it was disturbing. And I didn't understand, like, why this wasn't an emergency or something, right? Like, why do we take for granted everyone's going to get sick and die and and rot at, at... some point, but we'd seen immortals on Star Trek, yeah. so it seemed like, like why, why couldn't, why, why wasn't there more effort to create Im- immortals like that, so my best idea then was make a spaceship like in Star Trek, <laughs> go far away, then come back, use relativistic time dilation, you come back a million years in the future, when the AGI has been created and, and immortality has been solved, and, and, and so forth, yeah. so that, seemed like a good idea, but then you have notions like the singularity coming maybe we don 't need to go away and come back a million years later maybe you can maybe you can do it within our lifetime and I think I was maybe eight years old when I discovered this notion from a book called the Prometheus Principle by Gerald Fein, Feinberg, where he described what we would now call the singularity yeah. so I mean all these ideas I was trying to read everything I could find and un- understand what was going on from a from a from a quite early age, really.
0: Wow. Wow. I mean knowing you for like about ten years now, yeah. it's like the first time I hear the backstory and I love to hear this story and why people do the way, what they do. I have no idea why I'm doing what I do. <laughs> I'm
1: just describing some yeah. yeah things. I mean, all these ideas were interesting to yeah. me, right? Mm-hmm. But then what you actually choose to spend your time on depends on a lot of contingent factors. I never imagined I would become an entrepreneur and be doing stuff in the business world. I'd yeah. expect I'd just be a mad scientist working in this, some basement laboratory brewing up weird Frankenstein AGI's or something.
0: Yeah. Um, Maybe s- I will be. <laughs> but, uh, so one of the things I'm also curious about is that um, is one of the early pioneers of this whole new idea, you know, which back at the old time, a lot of these things that we discussed was not possible other than in sci-fi films or books. Uh, What kind of challenges that you personally and professionally can do, you know, by leading up this whole idea? Challenges. Um...
2: Uh, This is it, though occasionally uh, one may receive passionate critiques, and I think much more common is indifference, uh, in the sense that, yeah, people know that one has weird ideas, but unless you say something like, yeah, your nose is too long or something, most people are quite relaxed, you have crazy ideas. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, totalitarian systems like, you know, religious systems or the old Soviet Union. People were used to having their ideas and views taken seriously and being persecuted for it. Whereas in the West, uh, typically, if you have radically unorthodox views, you will be, like to otherwise, ignored. Having said that, uh, yes, over the years I have uh, a, a trot on a number of toes, which I hate. I hate offending people, but nonetheless, uh, if you do convey uh, the view that you think our treatment of non human animals is uh, akin to uh, uh, child abuse, uh, inevitably this uh, does upset uh, uh, some meat eaters. Mm. But that's, you know, it's uh, less being distinctively transhumanist because, yeah, I mean, as a transhumanist, I urge, long urged. Development of cultured meat technologies because that way yeah. you can have global veganism without the need for the slightest personal inconvenience of the average yeah. consumer. And it's
1: coming, right? And it's, it's coming. It's already rolling out. It's amazing.
2: I did more. More surprisingly, uh, I never thought in my lifetime wild animal suffering uh, would be discussed, but it's now yeah, it's getting uh, taken yeah, a bit seriously. Um, yeah. If,
0: you know what's also interesting is that uh, I was discussing with John like you know if you think about all these sci-fi films you know yeah. most of their so the, the super whatever aliens or super intelligence yeah. type of thing uh, you had some kind of animal forms you know like you know all like ears or like you know like something yeah, I mean, you know the.
1: IRS subconscious and our our mythology but that's what people like to see
0: yeah it's
1: like children's stories with all the talking animals yeah
0: yeah that
1: that says something about our psyche right yeah we we, we haven't outgrown the the species memory of living living in the african savannah with all these animals around
0: Yeah, yeah. So how about you, Ben, you know, being one of the pioneers in the whole transhumanism as well as the AGI. What kind of challenges that you personally and professionally can do?
1: My biggest personal challenge has always been prioritizing because there are too many things that are exciting and amazing that that I want to do and only so many hours in the day. But I, I would say for much of my career, pushing toward AGI there, there's a the problem that it's a very difficult career to be in because AGI wasn't taken seriously at all yeah. so I mean in academia where I started you couldn't give talks or publish papers on AGI or you'd be kicked out of your department basically. So I mean I did other interesting sorts of research while working on AGI in the background. And of course in in industry it also was wasn't taken taken very seriously. Whereas now now that AI has become more popular, the, at least the concept that AGI is a reasonable thing to pursue is yeah. now embraced by national leaders and corporate executives and so on. So that that challenge of pushing on something that nobody believes in isn't there anymore for, for AGI. But I sort of enjoyed that challenge. So n- n- now I've started, as well as my AGI work, I've started doing more research on parapsychology psychology and ESP precognition and remote viewing and stuff, which is is stuff that right now is respected about as much as AGI was twenty five years yeah, ago. Okay. But but I'm I'm betting in another twenty years is gonna is gonna be quite quite mainstream. So I, I guess while the disbelief of the world was an annoying challenge, it's also also sort of a fun challenge, right? Yeah. So I mean everything has has pluses and minuses to it. But of course well, the challenge of fighting against the stupid establishment is kind of fun. It's even more fun to be in a time when and AGI, AGI, prog- okay. well, AGI <laughs> progress is so rapid now, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, now you get And
0: you're talking about how many years of time span, like when you first started? Um, I, I it's been thumb.
1: 30 years since I got my PhD. Mm, and wow. I was doing some AI mm-hmm. and AGI research as a PhD student also. So say. 33, 34, ye- 34 years I've been in the field. Yeah. And only the last five or seven years has it really been like popular mainstream and, yeah. and, and not marginalized. And it, it's been interesting to see that trajectory, right? Because it really is like, you know, one year everyone's laughing at you like, what, this is crazy, you'll never be able to do this. This means nothing. And then two years later, it's like, well, yeah. Of course, that's obvious. We already knew it was obvious, and just seeing that transition happen is is quite dramatic, and it makes you think that transition could happen with with a lot of other things, also, right? Yeah. It, I, mean, I mean, it's I,
0: proven by history. Yeah.
1: I mean, I. I you always knew it was proven by history but experiencing it in, in my own life is is, yeah. is, is, is is still feels different and
0: in be right? proud of like you guys really are the leaders who started this whole thing well, I'm not when very it was leak, you know difficult. I, don't think, I
1: don't think that's either of our personalities actually <laughs> i mean it's, it's it's one one thing you get more and more of a feel of the older you get is there's a large sweep of progress and events yeah. and the, the thinking is done by the totality of the human species and, and human culture and each of us has played some significant role, but if we died as infants, essentially these ideas would get pushed forward by, by somebody else and probably the human species would get to about the same place. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool to be involved in these processes and, and to contribute, but I, 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 I don't think... I mean, we're all just footnotes, really. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, ner- we're neurons in the global brain. That's it.
0: <laughs> so,
2: yeah. Yeah, uh, when it comes to, for example, parapsychology, I'm a, a high-bound pillar of scientific orthodoxy, I confess. But, of course, as soon as uh, one steps back, you know... Uh, One sees so many misguided people, and I take the principle of mediocrity seriously, the chances are I am radically (laughs) misguided too. Um, You know, I had an anthroposophist grandmother, for example, and, um, I mean, yes, she was pretty pretty crazy. But Mm. it it disturbs me in some ways when I see people I might think of as quite psychotic because, you you know, chances are statistically one is going to be fundamentally wrong uh, too in in ways that transcend one's conceptual scheme.
1: Um, Well, I often think like my dogs at home. What are they thinking when I'm at the computer typing? Like, they think I'm guarding this object that's valuable to me. Maybe I'm exercising my fingers a bit. They have no idea I'm controlling, like, vast computer yeah. server farms elsewhere in the world or, or you know, discussing advanced mathematics with with other people. So similarly, if we had a super AI in the room with us here, what would it see that, that we don't see? What would we totally not be able to understand? So, I mean, I, I think our, yeah, our understanding... Of the universe we live in is probably astoundingly limited in ways we can't. Oh yeah, can't I'm pretty sure about that. <laughs> we can't comprehend. Yeah, and
0: right also now. even the understanding of human brain, you know, like like you know, you know, what what really makes a human, well, we just, you know, still a mystery in a lot of sense. Well,
1: we don't have the instrumentation to measure how the human brain works right now. Yeah. And w- once we do, I think we'll be able to understand that just like we understand the liver and the and the heart. Fairly, fairly well now but there, there may be many other aspects of the universe that a superhuman AI sees right away that we're not able to see like take this notion of the global brain of like human culture and society as having some reality to it. So maybe the thought processes in the whole scientific community or the whole human species rather than the brain of any one human. We're just too dumb to understand what are the trains of thought of the whole culture or the whole species. Maybe a superhuman AI will be able to see that. Maybe <laughs> it'll have a conversation with humanity as a whole rather than with, a, with any human, right? Uh-huh. So there are just so many dimensions that we're not able to understand any more than a dog or a chimp could understand the Riemann hypothesis. But, I mean, that's sort of the beauty of the singularity idea that, you know, within the next decades, we could build superhuman minds that are as as far beyond us as we are beyond cockroaches and we could even fuse with these superhuman minds.
0: Yeah, Um, So I do have one quick question. We're we're both
1: much more interested in talking about cool ideas than about our own (laughs) <laughs> our own lives and, and histories well, typical good. male primates in
0: the <laughs> <other>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so okay thank you for listening to this wonderful interview, I hope you enjoy as much as I do we hope to see you soon in the next part of interview stay tuned Stage 4 show fan, I hope you love this interview. COVID-19 make me realize that wisdom from these top industry leaders is invaluable for dealing with uncertainty and building resilience. When you share our show, you're helping change lives too. I love you, and I'll see you in the next show. Stage 4 is an educational arm of Dance for Healing. Check out our COVID-19 initiative at wwwstage IV and www.dance number four healingcom Welcome to Stage 4 Show, started by a Stage 4 Cancer Conqueror with a mission to save one million lives with public education, inspiring stories, and technology innovation. Today, we are in Humanity Plus in London conference with two lovely, admiring human beings that I've been admiring in this community for a while, Ben Garzo and David Pierce. Uh, Ben, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who has a, a 16-year-old son.
1: Actually, I don't. I have a 16
0: mean, month son. son.
1: <laughs> I have a 29-year-old and 25-year-old son. Too. Yeah. You know, I got a lot of, lot of human offspring and a, a bunch of robot offspring, too. Yeah, and well. a
0: 4-year-old robot and a 14-month-old yeah. granddaughter. That's right. Yeah, and then David Pierce, who's a vegan pacifist.
2: He is a vegan well, pacifist. I happen to be a vegan pacifist, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I have no offspring. Okay. I, I don't
1: believe in uh, reckless genetic experimentation. I, I believe right. in trying to improve the human genome. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing my best <laughs> do to this be? as much as I can. Right? <laughs> but, as many offspring as possible, then. <laughs> but but D- David has been one of the world's most effective uh, advocates of. Human and transhuman happiness which yeah. is a, which is e- even more important than producing offspring.
0: Yeah, you know, which is a topic that you know keep coming up in uh this conference yesterday and today, right? You know, the the happiness, the love, you know, the foundation of humanity never change Doesn't matter whether singularity is coming or not. And so, you know, you two are like, you know, one of the oldest uh, you know, pioneers in this whole transhumanist know, I'm only, I'm only, movement. I'm only, only
1: fifty two. I don't know if I'm the oldest. <laughs> Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, but you He's are. Older than me, I think. Yes, yeah. So David, do you want to share? How did you get started? How
1: did you get so old?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well,
2: at the age of 102, I am a living testament to the uh, the health advantages of a vegan lifestyle. No, I'm not really 102.
1: But um, depends on the units, right?
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, no, uh, essentially, yes. I'm a third generation vegetarian vegan. Uh, back in 1995 I wrote this manifesto, The Hedonistic Imperative, uh, which calls for the use of genetic engineering to reprogram the biosphere, replace the biology of pain and suffering and malaise with gradients of superhuman bliss. And in 1997, a young postgrad called Nick Bostrom uh, academic and part-time stand-up comedian at the uh, LSE. Uh, stumbled across my work, got in touch, one thing led to another, and we set up uh, the World Transhumanist uh, Association, now rebranded as Humanity Plus. Uh, what is transhumanism? Well, the re-
0: Tell our audience, what is transhumanism? And you have the luck to hear directly from founder of this movement. <laughs>
2: Uh, well, there are almost as many versions of transhumanism as there are transhumanists. Some would say more. Um, but uh, yes, I define transhumanism in terms of the three supers. Superintelligence in the richer sense of the term, not not the just the narrow autistic sense, but full spectrum superintelligence. Super longevity, this is the idea that we uh, are going to phase out the biology of aging, but just as uh, inorganic robots can be repaired indefinitely, in principle organic robots can be repaired too. Uh, and the third super, super happiness, this is the idea uh, that all sentient beings uh, should be re-engineered so that they can enjoy life based on gradients, entirely based on gradients of intelligent bliss.
1: What do you think of super compassion?
2: <laughs>
0: well, this Super was, love! <laughs> this is it. A
2: lot of people will agree or, or, or with the three supers, but want to add, add some one more. more. Yeah. But I would argue that a rich sense of super intelligence would imply a superhuman capacity for perspective taking, empathetic understanding.
1: Uh, the capacity for, but would it imply the realization of that?
2: Well, insofar as just as a mirror-touch synesthesia, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't have a, a fist fight with a mirror-touch synesthete, because if, if, you know, if, if you punch, you know, you, you experience, so to speak, each other's pains and pleasures, and likewise a superhuman intelligence that uh, could feel your feelings, experience your experiences, as its
1: own, it couldn't be a sadist. It then. couldn't
2: be a sadist. I so mean, there are many complications there, but just yeah. as just as you would withdraw your hand from the far, fire, I think a godlike superintelligence would, uh, figuratively speaking, withdraw the collective hand of all sentient beings from the fire.
1: This is a, it's an interesting and subtle point, though, right? Because it indicates, I mean, it reflects the fact that your understanding of intelligence. Is very different than, for example, Nick Bostrom's current understanding intelligence, where he's looking at an intelligence as excess, essentially a reinforcement learner that's trying to optimize an arbitrary objective function. And your your understanding of intelligence is quite I think richer the, and different. The Borg
2: knows something we don't. Uh, mm. That if you ask people, "How do you feel intellectually inadequate?" they may talk about their deficiencies, let's say in mathematics, high mathematics, or something like that. Whereas I think the fact that we are, each of us are island universes and that is a profound source of ignorance. Uh, How
1: do you define intelligence?
2: How do I define intelligence? Oh, good heavens. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) One aspect of intelligence is the kind, the very narrow and inadequate kind uh, uh, measured by IQ tests, which very crudely speaking, autistic intelligence that does not involve cooperative problem-solving, uh does not involve perspective taking doesn't involve sophisticated introspection doesn't I- involve exploring uh radically altered state spaces of consciousness uh in, in short it is uh yeah extremely impoverished um that said uh uh, yes, it, uh, uh, the, uh, Newton was extremely high on the autistic Asperger's scale. Uh, Jeremy Bentham was high too. Um, but yeah, uh, but when one speaks of post-human super intelligence, what does one actually mean? Uh, intelligence is a contested concept and simply sticking the word super in front of it uh, is pretty vacuous. I personally think that post-human super intelligence will regard what currently passes for uh, intelligence is extraordinarily simple-minded uh, conceptions. and no doubt. Yeah. Essentially, it, it, what one thinks of as intelligence, or, or, or how one explains the concept, reveals more about one's own uh, intellectual and emotional limitations, preoccupations. Uh, I can. Yeah. No, no, sorry.
0: So I'm curious to hear. You know, like. Based on what David just started, this whole very philosophical thought of like humanity intelligence, and you as one of the most recognized AGI scientists working in AI and robotics for a long time, you know, like what was your interpretation of human intelligence and technology and humanity?
1: I mean, I, I really started in the AI pursuit largely from a philosophical perspective also, of really trying to understand how the mind works at a foundational level. Partly because when I started thinking about this as a kid in the 1970s, there wasn't much practically that you could do about it. I mean, computers were not very powerful at that time, and the the robots you could buy were were not not very capable. So yeah, I I think uh, many of uh, David's uh, concepts are along the lines that i had been thinking myself and indeed the notion of iq is limited only to certain yeah. human cultures even let alone it doesn't apply across different species but then the mathematical notion of intelligence is optimizing a reward function or achieving goals more and more seems not right either now david weinbaum uh, uh, one of my friends who goes by the name weaver he had a PhD thesis on what called open ended intelligence, where he's just looking at, you know, a self organizing complex system that's constantly generating new information in, in cooperation with its environment. And that's interesting, but yet it seems even broader. It's more like a definition of life or complexity than intelligence. So it may well be that once you have a sufficiently advanced AI system, intelligence no longer even seems like like an interesting concept to it, right? I mean, j- just as there were, we no longer ask how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. <laughs> it seemed like an interesting concept in medieval times. It's not interesting to us anymore. Maybe how do you measure or quantify intelligence will just seem like a silly question to the extremely complex, self-organizing adaptive systems that, that we that we all create. So I think trying to flesh out these conceptual ideas I mean it, it's very important, it gives you new tools and vocabularies to, to work with. We don't necessarily need to iron out all these conceptual ideas to move forward with with building things. I mean just as we've built amazing things using quantum mechanics, even though there are conceptual issues at the heart of quantum mechanics, so people are still Still thinking and, and puzzling about, right? I mean the the quest to clarify your concepts and the quest to build things using those concepts can occur together and and synced up rather than you have to resolve everything before you can before you can build stuff. so i'm I'm sort of engaged in both pursuits now, trying to understand how intelligence works more and more and what it is and how minds work and also trying to build minds that are are, are smarter and smarter.
0: What about emotions? Like, you know, i including, you know, that interesting discussion about emotions and the robot film uh, today, as well as the creative arts. You know, what was your guys' perspective? I haven't heard the emotion mentioned by you or you.
1: I mean, I've worked a lot with emotion and AI, particularly with the Sophia robot and the other Hanson robots. I mean, with those particular robots, our goal, is to make AIs that can demonstrate human emotion and can elicit strong emotions in people. And I think that's an important thing to do from the perspective of ingesting human values and culture into your AI system. Mm -hmm. But in the end, we're going to build super AIs that are a trillion times more intelligent than humans, and human emotions will seem very simplistic to these AIs in the same sense that you know, a dog's or a cockroach's emotions seem very simplistic to me now, but, but even more so, right? Because we're, we're we're still mammals, so we're not that different than dogs, where super AIs are going to be radically well, so different. The, the super AI is not going to experience, like sexual jealousy or it's not going to worry about its social status in hierarchies relative to other so people. So
0: you, you, you're saying that a robot is not supposed to be emotional?
1: No, robot, <laughs> ro- I'm not saying that. I mean, the robot, A robot can be emotional. W- w- what I'm saying is that the AIs that demonstrate human emotions and yeah. that feel human-like emotions, yeah. Yeah. they will exist. And they're important for the interfacing of AIs with humans. Yeah. But these are going to be a small fraction of the total space of AIs that are created. The AIs that are far beyond human emotion are going to be much smarter and more powerful and absorb more matter inform- and information. Right. So
0: when we reach and that stage of superintelligence, is emotion still
1: exists. Well, emotion exists for humans and for AIs that are like humans. What, what, what's going to happen is once AI becomes advanced enough, it's a trillion times smarter than you, you have two choices.
0: So they can feel your emotion.
1: Sure, but they don't, just like we can feel a cockroach's emotion if we want, but we don't care too much. You'll have two choices. You can upgrade your mind and join the super intelligence, giving up your illusion of self and free will and your humanity, fusing with the god-mind matrix, or you can remain in a human form, hopefully with upgrades like curing aging and death and mental illness, and you'll know that there are just super intelligences a trillion times smarter than you out there. You'll you'll be like the squirrels in the national park. Just you're you're carrying out your little squirrel life.
0: So now while, I'm curious to AIs hear about you. what David's yeah. response on that, because he seems passionate about his super happiness, and which is an emotion. Super
1: happiness is great. I mean. <laughs> so
0: I, what's your response I, and the super intelligence super that is emotionless? Super.
1: <laughs> a, no one's talking about an intelligence that's emotionless. So. I mean, I, I think.
0: But not. controlled by emotions that's sort of what you say
1: not controlled by but I think human human emotion is a small subset of the scope of possible emotion that AI minds could have yeah so a superhuman AI mind with sensors all over the planet and actuators all over the planet and other star systems and the ability to control a billion bodies at once, it may have some emotions. They're not going to be the same as yours and mine are right now.
0: Yeah, so how do you mint in humanity in that you sense, don't. It's not you humanity. know, or super intelligence? It's
2: yeah. Uh, ben and I don't uh, altogether agree on uh, <laughs> this topic. I uh, I would argue that classical digital computers, classical connectionist uh, systems are zombies or micro experiential zombies. They can't solve the binding problem. And that though I think uh, humans and transhumans and posthumans will incorporate narrow. AI. But then ourselves. we just built
1: quantum computers. I mean, wh- 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 why fix it on uh, one particular I, I will, computing in architecture? In the case of quant- quantum computers, I They're think already being built. Well,
2: non-biological quantum computers, I think, can solve the binding problem, but we've no, in, no reason to believe that they will have a pleasure-pain axis or any form of emotion.
0: Uh, yeah. Thank you for listening to this wonderful interview. I hope you enjoy as much as I do. We hope to see you soon in the next part of interview. Stay tuned! Stage 4 show fan, I hope you love this interview. COVID-19 made me realize that wisdom from these top industry leaders is invaluable for dealing with uncertainty and building resilience. When you share our show, you're helping change lives too. I love you, and I'll see you in the next show. Stage 4 is an educational arm of Dance for Healing. Check out our COVID-19 initiative at www.stage4.org. IV.org and www.diense number four healing.com.